Well, I'm glad that you are here this morning. I'm glad the heat is working in here this morning. And I am glad that I get to welcome you to the gospel, the good news of Jesus Christ according to Matthew, which is a a big, long title for a book we usually just call Matthew, which is essentially a biography about the life of Jesus, why he was here, and what he came to do, written by one of his closest friends, a man named Matthew. Now, we saw in kind of our overview last week how Matthew has a really laser-focused purpose to show us how God is keeping all of the promises he's made. And we're using this golf metaphor to get that idea that God has been laying out the course for who the Messiah would be, where he would come from, when he would come, what he would do while he was here. He's been laying out that course for millennia through the Old Testament. And every golf ball was representing prophecies, predictions, promises that God made from the beginning of time and throughout the Old Testament of exactly who Jesus was going to be. And we'll see through this book that Jesus doesn't just come and kind of play through and hit a par three and a birdie here and a bogey there, but that he hits every prediction perfectly like a hole in one. You see, Matthew was a guy who became convinced that Jesus really was the Messiah. He's writing his book to give us the opportunity to be convinced of the same thing, to see how Jesus kept these promises, to see what those promises are and what that means for us. Matthew's convinced that by the end of his book, you will realize that Jesus is the Savior that you've been waiting for. So here's how he starts Page 1, chapter 1, verse 1, first line, the book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Genealogy, which means for like the next 15 verses, we've got a big long list of names, which is everybody's favorite part of the Bible, right? Have you ever heard somebody say that their favorite verse is like dead from the middle of a a genealogy? I love that one where it's got like six names in a row. It just really speaks to me. Right, you don't really hear that. In fact, you're more likely to hear, oh yeah, I usually kind of breeze past that part. I don't really know the names. I don't know how to pronounce them. And yet, Matthew is going to start there. Like you and I, we might agree it's important. So if I was writing this, I would have like Appendix A, genealogy. That way for those who are really interested, yes, it's really here. But for Matthew, this is of crucial importance because he's writing to a Jewish audience. They know their Old Testament And genealogies are important to them. Mainly because the Savior has to come from a specific family line. He has to be able to trace his lineage back to David and Abraham. And so this word genealogy actually starts to carry a lot of weight. And in fact, it is the Greek word genesis where we get our word genesis. So Matthew may even be calling to mind for his Greek readers that these are the origins of Jesus Christ. This is where it all started and it connects all the way back to the beginning of time in the book of Genesis. All the way back to the beginning of God's promises, predictions, and prophecies for how he was going to save the world the genesis of Jesus. In fact, it's the same word that it will use next week in verse 18 to describe his birth. Same root word in the Greek. This is where the Messiah came from. Let me tell you about it. 
In fact, you notice it's not just the genealogy of Jesus. It's the genealogy of Jesus Christ, which you know is not his last name. It becomes like a title. It's from the Greek word Christos, which is for the Jewish word, the Hebrew word, Mashiach or Messiah. Those are the same thing, and it means anointed one. So in one sense, every king in the Hebrew history could be called an anointed one because they were anointed with oil when they were made king. But now they've had hundreds of years without a king. And the, through the prophecies, the idea of the anointed one becomes the anointed one. It becomes not just an action toward that king, but a title for the king of kings, the savior, the Messiah who will eventually come. So Matthew is making an early and bold claim that this genealogy is part of how he's going to prove that Jesus is actually the Christ. See, Matthew believes that in a genealogy, we will learn more about Jesus. But not only will we learn more about Jesus, when you learn more about Jesus, you learn more about yourself. And and genealogies can be a pretty fun way to do that. In fact, a, a friend pointed out to me this week, I found this hard to believe, but half of Americans cannot name all four grandparents. They don't know their first names. All right, did you get them all? <laughs> right? Let's see, Jack, Shirley, LaRue, and Wanda Merle. All right, I'm in, I'm in the half that knows, right? In fact, half of Americans can only name one or none of their great-grandparents. Ah, uh, Millicent. Axel. I know that one because I named my son after him. <laughs> All right, I got at least one, right? In fact, it's interesting to think about how much of our heritage we lose after just like two or three or four generations because life moves on. I, I never met that person. I don't think about that person. Maybe you don't retell their story, which I think is part of why lately it, it's become such a favorite pastime for people to go and start to dig in. Like, what is my family tree? Where did I come from? You know, you get all kinds of like the 23 in me and those kinds of things. Like, who, who am I and what's my heritage? And so uh, this past Christmas, I was sitting for coffee with my sister and my wife. And actually, my wife's sister had done the 23 in me to get kind of their DNA genealogical background. And it was pretty interesting to look at because there really was a little bit of Native American. Like, we'd always heard that story, but now you've got proof. <laughs> right? We knew that. Actually, almost 2% Jewish, apparently. But the one that surprised me probably the most is that they were over 70% British or somewhere in the British Isles. And I thought, I told my wife this. I said, you know, I got a buddy who grew up just outside of London, which means, Melissa, you might be more British than Brendan. That would be pretty cool, right? We should get some tea and crumpets on the way home. Like, let's really live this thing up. You know, but the fun part of it was just thinking, like, what, what is all of the history of different people from these different places who came together somehow, and as their lives intersected, it leads to this incredible person, my wife, Melissa. You see, that's part of what Matthew's trying to show us with Jesus, that he's not just a random person who dropped out of the sky and does miracles and teaches cool things, but that God has been leading to this moment for centuries through layers and layers and layers of a family to whom he made promises. And so when Matthew tells this story, when he writes this genealogy, actually part of this is very carefully crafted to show us those promises. In fact, that's why he started with David and Abraham. In fact, if we start with Abraham, chronologically speaking, 
back in Genesis 22, this is what God says to Abraham. In your seed, all the nations of the earth shall be blessed because you have obeyed my voice. So seed is a biological term here. Right, this is why our PG-13 sign is out this morning. Like when I talk to my kids, it's like, well, you need an egg from the mommy and a seed from the daddy, <laughs> right? right? That is what God's saying to him. It's not just a person that will come sometime who believes some of the same things as you. He's saying, Abraham, in your seed, from your body, from your family line, there will be one. There will be the one through whom all the nations of the earth will be blessed. It's even emphasized in the New Testament that this word right here is singular. It's not a people group. It's a person. He makes the same promise to David centuries later. He says to David, the king, I will set up your seed after you who will come from your body and I will establish his kingdom. Your throne shall be established forever because of this child who is going to be born. You think about that, David is one of the greatest kings in Israel's history. You know, he's, their, he's their worship leader, he's their harp player, he's their military leader, and yet he's not their forever king. Right? David was king until he died. Then his son Solomon was king until he died. But God is telling him, there is one who will establish your throne forever. The forever king is coming. In fact, if you jump down to verse 17, this comes at the end of the genealogy, Matthew recaps it by saying, so all the generations from Abraham to David are 14 generations, from David until the captivity in Babylon are 14 generations, and from the captivity in Babylon until the Christ are 14 generations. Man, isn't that neat and tidy? So here's what's kind of interesting. Matthew, again, he's, he's editing this very carefully to make a very specific point. So when he says that he breaks it down into kind of these three time periods, from Abraham to David, from David to captivity, and from captivity to the Christ, and he says it's 14 generations to each. So what's kind of interesting is, you know, he had the Old Testament, his readers had the Old Testament, we have the Old Testament. You can compare Matthew's genealogy side by side with the genealogies in the Old Testament and realize that he's skipping a few names. Oops, start over, Matthew. Right? It's one of those weird places where you say, oh, the Bible's full of errors. He forgot some names. Then you think, no, this is so obvious. Like, he clearly would have just crumpled that piece of parchment, started over. He has to be doing it on purpose. He makes it even more clear by giving this 14, 14, 14, 14, because the only way he gets that is by skipping a couple of names. And even so, it's actually 14, 14, 13 in his genealogy. So then people debate if it's because you're actually supposed to count David twice and that gets you back up to 14. Or maybe it's because God is so merciful he brought Jesus a little early instead of making it all the way to 14. Like, there's, there's endless debate. And if, um, you, let's see, you guys have, to, are we till noon today? All right, so I won't go into all of it right now. Suffice to say, he's doing this on purpose. It's not a mistake. It's not, oh, shoot, if only he had double-checked numbers. Right? What he's trying to show them is actually most scholars think because the name David adds up to 14 in the Hebrew language. So they didn't have separate numbers. They used letters for numbers. D is 4, so D, V, D, the consonants from David. V is 6, so D, 4, V, 6, D, 4 adds up to 14. That essentially this is not meant to be hidden or mysterious or strange, but that Matthew is saying, 
Look, I'm skipping a couple of names here because here's what I want you to see. From Abraham to David, it was 14. It was David the whole time. From David to captivity, it was David the whole time. And from captivity to Christ, it was David the whole time. His point being, this is the Christ who is going to be the king. The king that you have been waiting for. That there is no Christ if he's not king. If he's a great teacher but he's not king, we're not talking about the Messiah. You see, the invitation that Matthew is giving us right at the beginning of the book that he's going to carry all the way through is to follow the Christ who has the right to the throne. If he doesn't have a right to the throne, then he is not the one that God told you we're waiting for. But if he is, then he's not just the king of Israel. He's the king of the world. And maybe more importantly, he's my king. Am I willing to follow the king who has the right to the throne? So what I'd like to do, if you can handle this, I want to just read the rest of the genealogy to you. And and what we're going to do is, as we do that, we'll highlight a couple specific things that are, are kind of strange. The kind of thing you might leave out unless you're doing something on purpose. So Matthew picks up in verse 2, saying, Abraham, we know Abraham, right? Abraham begot Isaac, Isaac begot Jacob, and Jacob begot Judah and his brothers. So far, so good. This sounds familiar. Judah begot Perez and Zerah by Tamar. Now that's interesting, because a Jewish genealogy would not include women, but Matthew's going to include several. Perez begot Hezron, and Hezron begot Ram, Ram begot Aminadab, Aminadab begot Nashon, and Nashon begot Salmon. Salmon begot Boaz by Rahab, another woman. Boaz begot Obed by Ruth, another woman. Obed begot Jesse, and Jesse begot David the king. Now, if you were really paying attention, you found out a little bit of trivia about my family too, because just like one of my boys is named after my great-grandpa, another one of my boys is named after Jesus Great, 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 great grandpa, Obed. So that's actually our twins. We thought it was kind of fun that it was like one of our ancestors and one of Jesus' ancestors that they could share names from. So in this first section from Abraham to David, he's really highlighting, for some reason, the women, but also the kingship. That the whole first section ends with that emphasis that this is the line of David the king. So he goes on in verse 6, he says, David the king begot Solomon by her who had been the wife of Uriah. Hmm. Solomon begot Rehoboam, Rehoboam begot Abijah, and Abijah got Asa. Asa begot Jehoshaphat. Now this is where, if you were part of our Second Kings series last year, you might start to say, okay, have I heard that name before? Because these were the guys that we heard about in Second Kings. Jehoshaphat begot Joram, Joram begot Uzziah, Uzziah begot Jotham, and Jotham begot Ahaz. So Ahaz, or Ahaz, that's the one that Ryan Ventura was teaching about when he showed us how Ahaz kept missing all of the Ahaz moments that God was trying to show him. That he didn't even want a sign, and yet it was to him that God said the virgin would be with child. Right here in Jesus' family line. Ahaz begot Hezekiah who was such a great king that many actually thought he might be the Messiah, that he might be the Christ. Then pride got a hold of him and things didn't work out quite as perfectly as it would need to for the Messiah. 
But Hezekiah begot Manasseh, Manasseh begot Ammon, and Ammon begot Josiah. Josiah begot Jeconiah. Remember that name, Jeconiah. And his brothers, about the time they were carried away to Babylon. And now this hits the moment where they wonder if all of God's promises have failed. Because now not only do they not have a king, they're not in the land, they're actually in captivity. And from here, it says that in verse 12, after they were brought to Babylon, Jeconiah begot Shealtiel, and Shealtiel begot one of the funnest names to say in the Bible, Zerubbabel. You're going to have to wait. You can try it right now if you want, but just do it real quiet, okay? Zerubbabel begot Abiud. Abiud begot Eliakim. Eliakim begot Azor. Azor begot Zadok. Zadok begot Akim, and Akim begot Eliud. Eliud begot Eleazar. Eleazar begot Mathan, and Mathan begot Jacob. And Jacob begot Joseph. Hey, I know that one. <laughs> That feels good again, right? To get back to names that are familiar to us. Joseph, the husband of Mary, of whom was born Jesus, who is called Christ. Through all of these centuries, all of these millennia, all of these generations, finally, even after the captivity, we've made it to the Christ. Now that is a massive claim for Matthew to make. In fact, that's part of why his book is going to be so full of so many fulfillments. Because to claim that someone is Christ, right, the one that we've been waiting for for hundreds and thousands of years, I'm supposed to believe it's him? I'm going to want some proof. And so Matthew starts rolling out the prophecies and saying, he is the son of David. He is the son of Abraham. He is the one who's keeping every promise that God has made, and I want you to see the evidence for it. In fact, part of why that was so critical was because Jesus was not the first one to claim that he was the Christ. There were a lot of messianic figures in Judaism, and some of them actually became pretty popular, had followings, people that really believed they were the one. And so I want to share just a couple of the most popular ones with you, because I think these stories are kind of interesting. You may even have heard of these before. One of them, in 132 AD, was a man named Simon Bar Kokhva. Now, Simon was extremely popular as a military leader. And if you remember, if, if, if you've read this before, otherwise you'll see it as we get there. During Jesus' life, people are trying to convince him to be a military leader. Take down Rome! That's what the Messiah is for, right? But Jesus doesn't do it. Well, Simon was a guy who claimed, that's why I'm here. I'm going to take down Rome. And he had this huge battle against Rome in Israel where they were vastly outnumbered, and he won. So people start thinking, this is it. This is the guy. He'll be our king. He'll destroy Rome. Problem was, about two years later, Rome came back with a lot more troops and a lot more vengeance. <laughs> They put down the revolt and they killed Simon Bar Kokhva. So all of his followers either died in the battle or disbanded. Now, here's why that's significant. See, because today it is 2024. Woo! We are 2,000 or so years removed from the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. And it is reasonable for people to ask questions and think, how do we know they didn't just make it up? Right? How do we know that Matthew's not a liar? And part of what you see is that 
when they hold up Jesus Christ, not only do they list all of the evidence, all of the genealogy, but they were willing to die for this. Every other messianic figure from the time of Jesus, from before the time of Jesus, and beyond the time of Jesus, even if they get a following, even if people believe them, as soon as that guy dies, the whole thing falls apart. Ah, what happened to the forever king? That is why if you drive around Cincinnati this morning, you will find people all over this city worshiping Jesus as Messiah, singing to Jesus like we did today as king, reading the Bible because they want to know how Jesus wants them to live their lives and who he is. And if you drive around Cincinnati this morning, you will not find a single church worshiping Simon Barkokova. Nobody wears little bracelets that say, what would Simon Barkokova do? Right? And, I know, and I know that's kind of funny, but it's just, it's just one of the most logical things in the world. If Jesus is not who he says he is, nobody bothers. Because Simon wasn't who he said he is. Why would I die? That dude died. Apparently he was not the Messiah. So I'm glad we won one fight, but no, I'm not committing my life to him and committing my family's lives to him. And nobody kneels down by their bedside and says, dear Simon, I know you're dead, but I got a big interview tomorrow. Right? There's something different about Jesus that Matthew is trying to show us. Another one, actually, you would think of as modern times. In 1666 AD, there was a guy named Shabbatai Zevi, meant to be the Jewish Messiah, pictured here after converting to Islam. So, not a great start, right? You know, the short version of his story is, again, he became very popular, especially through his teachings. He had a large following, but he was arrested by the leader of Turkey who told him, either you convert to Islam or I kill you. So he converted to Islam and all of his followers disbanded. In fact, he actually lived in the presence of the king of Turkey and received a pension from the Muslim king for the rest of his life. Like, hey, I know your friends won't like you anymore, but I'll put you up. So you just convert, tell your friends to, to forget the whole thing. See, the reason I share those with you is because I want you to see, like, Jesus' story doesn't have those problems. When he faced death, he didn't back down. And when he died, he didn't stay dead. That his followers have spread through the entire world for thousands of years since. There are more of them than ever before. They didn't disband. And yet, there is something a little tricky. There is a problem right in the middle of Jesus' genealogy. Remember, I, I told you to remember that name, Jeconiah? And it came kind of right before captivity. You see, Josiah begot Jeconiah. They were carried away to Babylon. So Jeconiah was the last king. He was carried into captivity in Babylon, and he was a terrible dude. Like, not a good guy. In fact, there's another place in Jeremiah that talks about Jeconiah, who is also called Coniah and sometimes Jehoiachin, just to keep us on our toes. <laughs> and this is what God said about Jeconiah. As I live, says the Lord, though Coniah, the son of Jehoiakim, king of Judah, were the signet on my right hand, yet I would pluck you off. For none of his descendants shall prosper, sitting on the throne of David and ruling any more in Judah. Okay, wait a minute. So Jeconiah's bloodline is cursed? 
God told Jeconiah none of his descendants would prosper, sit on the throne of David, and rule in Judah anymore. Matthew, if you're going to skip names, skip Jeconiah. This is like a glaring, like if we're trying to trick people, you need to leave this name out because we know the curse. But he doesn't leave it out. Which begs the question, if the throne goes through Jeconiah, but now the bloodline is cursed, what are we going to do? You see, at the time of captivity and since then, nobody had sat on the throne. Nobody could claim the throne. They'd had hundreds of years of no king because the line of kings had failed. And guys, if you are a golfer, I don't mean failed like you aimed for the fairway, but you hit it in the rough. Okay, this is not, like, Jeconiah is not like it landed in a sand trap, but I can kind of wedge it out. This is not when it lands in the water and you got to take, like, a stroke penalty. Okay, Jeconiah's failure is like when you thought you landed it on the fairway, and then a seagull comes in, picks up your ball, flies away with it, and you never see it again. <laughs> Which, if you're into watching golf, this actually happened to Phil Mickelson in 2019, and it happened again at the Women's Championship a couple years ago. And if I just told you a bird stole the golf ball, like, wouldn't you assume it was a seagull? Like, isn't it always them? Like, I don't know what it is about them. They're just, they're trouble. Okay, like, that's the kind of picture here. It's not like we're going to try to play through. It's not like we're going to try to figure something out. Like, the ball is gone. We're not playing anymore. The line of kings has failed. And through the captivity, they thought the promises has, have failed too. And for hundreds of years after that, and, and, and through Babylon and Syria, and now with the Greco-Roman Empire, everybody else is crushing Israel. And they have no king of their own. And yet Matthew claims that he comes from this line. So here's what's important to remember. As he tracks from Ab Abraham to David, even through Jeconiah down to Joseph, Remember, he doesn't say Joseph begot Jesus. He says Joseph, the husband of Mary, of whom was born Jesus, who is called Christ. And in fact, next week, he's going to show us the virgin birth. So when you ask the question, how do we get around this cursed bloodline? How is it that, that anyone, literally anyone, could have the right to the throne anymore. Well, let's see if I can put it this simply. Because Jesus is the oldest son of Joseph by adoption, but not by blood. He inherits through adoption the right to the throne without any of the cursed DNA. You tracking with me? So there's a couple of ways that, that um, theologians and, and people who are studying the Bible kind of work this out. Because you can think about Joseph and Mary together. So this Messiah has to come from the line of David. And what I've got for you here is a, a very simplified picture. Because there are about 37 different options for how this could work. Um, so we'll go till 1, I think, instead of noon, if that's okay with everybody. <laughs> like, sip a little more coffee. Uh, Okay, if you want to know all the details, let's just go get coffee sometime. 
But, but here's how I want to break this down for you so you can see what Matthew is trying to do. Because the other problem we run into with genealogy of Jesus is that Matthew and Luke have two very different lists. They're, they're basically identical up to David, but then Matthew tracks through David's son Solomon, and Luke tracks through David's son Nathan. And then centuries later, they converge at Jesus. So there are a few options of what is happening here. And the important thing is that there are options, right? Because again, as opposed to looking at it and saying, well, that was a huge mistake. I can't believe somebody didn't catch this when they first put the Bible together. You say, no, they must clearly be making some kind of different point here. So the options basically boil down to that there are, there are two of David's family lines that are reconverging at Jesus. It is possible that both Matthew and Luke are describing Joseph's lineage, that one of them is biological, and that one of them is, is essentially through adoption. Like there are different ways that if somebody had no kids and you marry into that family, you now become the heir of that family as well. So that they could both be Joseph, one biological and one inherited from another family. The other option is that Matthew is tracking Joseph's lineage and Luke is tracking Mary's. And then you would say, yeah, but Jews don't include women. Well, Matthew included several women. And the virgin birth is a significant event that might make you say, you know, I know this is weird, but I think we're going to have to track through the mom. So it's possible that Matthew is tracking Joseph and Luke is tracking Mary. Even if we can't nail down exactly what's happening in those, we know from the New Testament that both Joseph and Mary are from David's lineage. Because the angel tells Mary that Jesus will be called a son of his father, David. And later in the New Testament, it affirms again in both Hebrews and Revelation that Jesus is from David's line. So essentially what happens is that because he is, in fact, I think this is part of what's so critical about the virgin birth, because the Holy Spirit is a miracle of creation in Mary's womb, then Jesus is genetically connected to Mary, but not to Joseph which gets him around the cursed bloodline while still inheriting the throne. Okay, now your head is spinning, right? Just, just come and look at all the notes I had to try to simplify that to like three minutes. But what's amazing about this is that when it looks like God's promises are impossible to keep, all things are possible with God. That no promise he ever made, when you pick this up and you say, hold on a second, but Jeconiah... That's impossible. It would be for you and me. It would be for anybody with two human parents. But what if the virgin was with child? And then the promise is kept. You see, the invitation that Matthew is giving us is not only that we follow the one who has the right to the throne, but that we follow the king who keeps the promise by breaking the curse. And it's not just the curse of Jeconiah. And it goes all the way back to Genesis all the way back to Genesis, when Adam and Eve ate a bad apple and the curse came on all of creation. Because you know what? Jesus' lineage is actually loaded with bad apples. It wasn't just Adam and Eve. In fact, again, we, we could be here all day if we went through each of these chapter by chapter. So what I did is I put the chapters up there if you want to read this a bit later. Um, they are also in the written pathway guide this week if you want to check that out. And if you don't know what that is, the Pathway Guide is printed in the program every week. It's right on the back of the message notes. And it's basically, uh, it's also online and on our app. 
And it's basically like three to five of our best questions to help you really dig into the text from the weekend's message and apply it to your own life. So I know people in our Horizon community that are, you know, they just take that by themselves during the week to help them dig into the word a little bit deeper. Now, some people like to do it one-on-one -on -one together with a friend, go through the questions. Uh, and we actually have a number of men's and women's groups who take that pathway and this weekend message and just use that passage for their study group each week. So if any of that sounds interesting to you, please let me know, but just kind of a, just kind of a plug for the pathway where you can find more of these references, because I'm going to give you like the 30-second version of each of these stories. And this first one, this first one is the real reason that the parental guidance sign is out there, because Judah begot Perez and Zerah by Tamar, only this is a little weird. Tamar is Judah's daughter-in-law, so that got weird. And basically what happens in Genesis 38 is that her husband dies without her having any children. So by Old Testament law, one of his brothers is supposed to give her a child to carry on the brother's family line, but they don't. So she dresses up as a prostitute to deceive her father-in-law because he must like that sort of thing so that he will get her pregnant so that she will have a child to carry on the family line. Gross, Bible. What I meant to say was, God bless the reading of his word. <laughs> Genesis 38, guys, I didn't make it up. And that is where Perez and Zerah came from. Twins born from that mess. Okay, Matthew. I mean, if we're cutting names, man, can we cut Judah at least? But look at what else. As you come down the line from Perez... Salmon begot Boaz by Rahab. Rahab didn't even pretend. She just was a prostitute. Not even Jewish. She lived in Jericho. Until she heard about the one true God. Repented. He turned her life around. He showed her mercy and she joined the people of promise. She, she and her family were the only ones saved out of Jericho. And on down the line from Rahab, Boaz begot Obed by Ruth. Now, wait a minute. Ruth is a Moabitess. That's like the sworn enemy of Israel. So even if we were going to let her hang out with us, surely the Messiah would not come from a Moabitess. Yet here she is. And on down from Ruth, she actually becomes, I, th I think it's the great-grandma of David, who begot Solomon by her who had been the wife of Uriah, and this is that thing that like every time we talk about David, you kind of feel like, yeah, but there was that one thing when he sent his friend Uriah to the front line so that he would be killed so that David could take his wife. And David and Bathsheba commit adultery together. Their first child dies. Their second child is Solomon. And you would think this is the point that God says, okay, we all make mistakes. I should not have picked this family. Let's start over somewhere else. But instead, he reaffirms his promise to David. From your seed will come the forever king. Guys, there are so many stories we could tell. Hezekiah begot Manasseh. Manasseh was described as the worst king. He's killing the enemy. He's killing his own people. He's sacrificing children and babies. He's the one dragged into captivity with a hook through his nose. And as he sits in a Babylonian prison, he realizes God is who he says he is, repents, and God restores him to his kingdom. Why wouldn't Matthew cut these names? 
because you are going to find out that this is the good news of Jesus Christ. That the whole reason he came was to save his people, not from Rome, but to save his people from their sins. And every story you see up there is an example of God's grace. That every bad apple, every scoundrel, every horrible situation that occurred, God overcomes it with grace. He keeps his promises and he brings people into his family that you and I never would have invited in. You see, the invitation is to trust the Savior who changes lives through grace. Anybody need to hear that this morning? Because I'll tell you what, if you knew everything I've done in my life, everything I've thought, everything I've said, you would not want me up here right now. And if we switched places and I knew everything you've done and you've said and you've thought, I wouldn't want you up here either. <laughs> and we probably wouldn't want to listen to Matthew because we're going to hear some of what he did. But here's my point. Whenever you feel like maybe you're too far gone or maybe you have been in the past, when those regrets come up that the enemy likes to remind you of or you remind yourself, read Jesus' genealogy and look at how much grace he brings to every one of us in his family. Because the reality is we know a lot of their darkness and maybe you remember a lot of your own, God is the God who actually knows all of it for all of us. And because of that, he said, I so love the world, I'm going to send my only son. And so here's maybe my invitation for you today. Add your story to Christ's family tree. You see, we've got all of this history now of, of the scoundrels and the bad apples that he redeemed, that, that he used even in Jesus' family. But from Jesus on, the family is open to the whole world now. That through Jesus Christ, we become sons and daughters of the king. And so instead of thinking that your story holds you back, maybe you start to think and pray, how does your story become part of God's story? as he's reaching out to more and more people to add to his family. Let's pray. Father, I am so thankful for your grace. Lord, that you who began a good work in us will be faithful to complete it. That you have shown me grace and changed my life, and you continue to show me grace and change my life and teach me things. And so, Lord, I just pray that for every person who is listening to this, that we would not let the past hold us down, but that, you know, like Rahab, like Ruth, that we would, we would turn to you, like Manasseh, we would repent and leave those things behind and follow your lead as the king who breaks the curse and changes lives through grace. Jesus, we love you, and we just thank you for that in your name, we pray. Amen.